Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. I am so excited to talk to today's guest. It's back to school month, which is why we have Dr. Jody Carrington on the show today. She is a renowned psychologist sought after for her expertise, energy, and approach to helping people solve their most complex human-centered challenges. She's a speaker, an author, a leader of the Carrington & Company that she helps run, and she uses all that she has been taught in her 20-plus year career as a psychologist to empower every single human she connects with. Jody has worked with families, with kids, business leaders, first responders, teachers, farmers, and anything in between, and has spoken in church basements and world-class stages the, the measure remains the same, and that is that the power lies in our ability to acknowledge each other first. In a show where we are trying to create empathy bridges with you, the listener, I am here for that. Her approach is authentic, honest, often hilarious. She speaks passionately about resilience, mental health, leadership, burnout, grief, and trauma, and how reconnection is the answer to so many of the root problems that we face. Her wildly popular book, Kids These Days was published in 2019. It sold more than 150,000 copies. And her message is as simple as it is complex. We're wired to do the hard things, but we're not meant to do them alone. With a PhD in clinical psychology, work with major institutions, and a thriving clinical practice, she brings a depth of experience and insight that is unmatched in the industry. And I am excited to introduce you to her. What an introduction. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Dr. Jody Carrington to the show. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together. go. Oh, let us go. Let's go. Dr. Jody. I'm so excited that you're here. Oh my gosh. I'm so, I'm so sad that we can't be in the same place. We just talked a little bit about this before we went on, how it changes the way that we show up. But I got to tell you, if anybody has never met you, who's inter- listening to this, your energy is undeniably amazing. This, this screen is more than enough for me uh, to feel the, the Dave Hollis energy. Oh, you're so sweet. I actually, and I do agree with you. Like there is something in connection that was a prized commodity that we did not value until it was something we could not access. And now in this, whatever, two years into, it feels like the COVID of it all, the ability to actually connect in person is something I, I don't think we're ever going to take for granted again once it becomes something we can do a little more regularly. I just gave uh, an introduction of you, but I always like to ask our guests to, in their own words, give a little introduction of yourself and maybe even more than that. Why do you believe that you have been placed on this planet and how do you hope to bring that reason to life with your light? All right. First of all, that introduction was the longest freaking bio I've ever heard. So I I feel like that was really... (laughs) You can chop that uh, if we need I'll to. I'll never chop a bio. Uh, what are you talking about? You did all oh those my things. <laughs> goodness, my goodness. All right. So uh, yeah, I'm a child psychologist by training and, and I've since done lots of work in the world of trauma. I don't really like kids, uh, to be honest with you. I have three of my own and they're fine, but I'm a much bigger fan of the people who hold them. 
Because here's the thing I know about kids is that if the big people who hold them aren't okay, they don't stand a chance. And I have spent a lot of time in my career looking after people. And I wish in grad school, I learned a lot about behaviorism. And I think we've all been raised, many of us were raised in this idea that if you reward the good stuff and punish the bad stuff, you end up with really beautiful humans. And that's so unfortunately misguided because that theory was based on what we learned from a rat and a pigeon. Okay. So the difference between humans and particularly human babies is that uh, we have a prefrontal cortex that really makes sense of things and has memory and emotion and all of those, that stuff. And they require connection, acknowledgement to be able to rise again and again and again. And I think there's this idea of emotional dysregulation that rules everything that I've uh, been so privileged to step into in this platform that we're creating, which is, you know, I, I talked about this quote before we went live by, you know, Ram Das, who said that we are all just here walking each other home. And I think as humans, the whole purpose for me on this planet is just to remind you and me and anybody who will listen that if you only knew how much you matter to so many, you would be wide open, full throttle in this life because it isn't in the big things that we do. It's in the little moments that have actually not only been life-changing, Dave Hollis, but life-saving. And so I often reflect on the amount of time and privilege I've had in my position as a psychologist and a mom and a wife uh, and as a, a team leader, how much of those little moments, the buying coffee, remembering a birthday, waving on the street corner, looking into my baby's eyes, all of those things that were the true, that's the true reason why I'm here. Yeah. And if I can just inspire and build a community around people who believe that to be true, uh, we're going to cast stones like no other. And it is a time, I'm telling you, right now that we need it because I think we're fixing to step into a mental health crisis. And we're too tired to hear those words right now, but I have never to the core of me believed anything to be so true. Uh, Our kids are killing themselves at higher rates than they ever have before. uh, And even more so the big people. Uh, Mental health is uh, a grip that um, has long been longstanding and we're just talking about it more and more. But I think post-COVID, I think in the middle of long overdue conversations around systemic oppression, we are going to see, uh, we're going to need each other like no other time in, in our history and potentially the history of this planet. So your work, the work that everybody you bring to this stage, um, it inspires me every day. And and in this all small little piece up here in Canada, I hope that's what we're creating too. Oh, it's, I mean, the idea of mental health being as or more important than physical health is the thing I've been talking about for a long time, but the stigmas that still exist around mental health, they feel like there's some chipping away that's happening. But to your point, it does feel like we are on the precipice of some very serious stuff when it comes yeah. to mental health. And if we are still inside of a world where people are uncomfortable talking about the way that they're feeling or have shame for mental health issues in a way that they wouldn't have shame if they got cancer or whatever else could plague them, um, that we're not going to be prepared or we're not going to be willing to address the things that feel like they are addressable or needing to be addressed in, in real time. What is it, what, like, what in your world are you seeing that is making some of the stigma go away or are you seeing any of the stigma go away? You know, I think there's really still a misunderstanding about what mental health and mental illness is all about. And I think in its simplest form, this is how I, I believe it to be true. Okay. So we, emotional regulation is the heart of this. And the definition of emotional regulation is how not to lose your friggin' mind. <laughs> And when you have the skill to stay calm in times of distress, not lose your friggin' mind, you will do well in this world. But when you bring a baby home from the hospital, they only have three basic ways to figure out how to get right with the world, fight, flight, and freeze. The job of little people in order to learn that skill is to lose their mind and have somebody, some big people walk them home, right? In reference to Ram Dass's quote, when you bring a baby home from the hospital, what do they let, how do they let you know what they need? How did those boys, how did that baby girl let you know what they needed? They screamed. They they lost their frigging mind. And what was the job of big people? To walk them home. Yeah, Mm -hmm. sure. And the more we do that in the physical presence of our children, the more they start to envelop this scale of emotional regulation. If you're surrounded by people who are dysregulated, drunk, high, absent, emotionally unavailable because nobody has given that to them, we see multiple generations of trauma, of emotional dysregulation, right? Which often happens in our communities. Now, the issue is when we grow up into bodies where we've had very few people give us the skill to use our words, stay calm in times of distress, we interrupt 
our cycles, our relationships with big bouts of emotional dysregulation, which makes it really difficult to do the walking. Yeah. And in this time of COVID, in this time of so many things that are being sort of disconnected from each I mean, wings on Wednesday night or working out at the gym or going to church on Sunday or, you know, going face to face with, with our grandparents or like those are the people who did the walking, the proximity. I mean, think about the square footage of the house that your grandfather was raised in and the square footage of the house in which we raise our babies, right? When somebody lost their friggin' mind, my grand, my, my father's house, right? There's a one bedroom house, three boys. Yeah. They came home from school. Guess who had eyes They're on? They were witness. Yeah. Everybody, you had no choice. And when they were dysregulated, there were so many people invested in doing the walking because it was loud or it was unacceptable or it was inappropriate. And so we were like, hey, come here, come here, mama, 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 mama. And now we text our kids when it's supper time and they're in our own house. (laughs) Yeah. And so there's been a disconnect in two generations about our ability to do the walking, which has left a lot more people increasingly so dysregulated. And in this 18 month interruption that we call COVID, there was also so much less. I mean, our babies were at school less. Our teachers do so much of the walking. Uh, our our coaches, our baseball coaches. I mean, I know you coach baseball. I coach hockey up here in Canada. I coach baseball, not because I'm good at those sports, but because I do so much of that. Oh, oh okay, 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 okay. Look at me. First of all, I'm doing that with the parents mostly. Yeah. Like, look at me, yeah. Jason. <laughs> They're not going to the bigs, all right? Go get a coffee. Or the babies that are just like, I can't, I can't open my water bottle. And you're like, okay, I know, I know water bottles are so tough. Come here. And when we walk each other through that process, guess what? They have the skills to do that for our grandchildren. Yeah. If we don't do that, if we miss that, if we don't have school divisions that are regulated, if we don't have hockey coaches that are regulated, our babies. And so if we look around, I mean, divorce has increased by 33% across this country, across North America, I should say, in the last uh, 18 months. Domestic violence rates are up. Which means emotional dysregulation as a whole is higher. Yeah. Our babies are going to step back into school more dysregulated. Our teachers, as you I know are familiar, are done. They're exhausted. They they've been asked to do things in their profession that you know have just been unthinkable, and well, they hang on hang on to their their own babies. And so, for anybody listening, our biggest job right now is we, we're not going to do this single handedly. Our job is to do the best, next, right, kind thing because we're just walking each other. Yeah, I, I was with John Acuff yesterday at his house and uh, he said something that he said to me before, but it just landed differently when I was in his house. So he said, you know, I try to tell parents that um, this is their first global pandemic. As a reminder for anyone who's like suggested that it's hard, of course it is, because we've never ever experienced this before. And in this weird way that our, world has us believing that we have to get things right, maybe the first time. I think we've held a standard in this environment that is just wildly unpredictable and very hard and filled with grief and a whole bunch of other things that in some ways makes us forget that we've never experienced anything like this ever. And that in the experience of it, not only do we have to give ourselves grace, but to your point, we have to find a way to connect in a way that normalizes the way that our experience ends up being just like everyone else's who's also going through the hardest thing that they like they've likely ever been through. Well, and that's the thing, right? Like we often depend on humans to connect us or to fill us up. I mean, that's where our greatest bucket fillers come is from other relationships, right? So what happens when most of us are waiting for the other guy to do the filling? Yeah. No, 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 no. no. I'm exhausted. Are, you're exhausted. I say this to my husband, who's a feedlot nutritionist. And he's, I was like, what, are you kidding? You were feeding cows all day. I got puke in my bra. I don't know where the two-year-old is. I actually don't even like your children. I mean, whose idea was it to have twins, by the way? <laughs> and your mother-in-law's a bitch. So here's the, like, I mean, not necessarily in that order, but it, we, I need you to be my person and you need me to be yours. But who goes first? Yeah. So we get in the standoff, right? And then we go to our communities or we go into our teams and they're like, oh my God, this is, I'm exhausted. And you're like, no, 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 no. No, you actually can't be exhausted because I'm exhausted first, okay? Yeah. And so we get into this competition of who needs who more. And I think here's the tricky part about it, actually, is that we actually are going to fill ourselves up in this season more than any other time by giving it away. Mm. And even in the darkest times, you can be a spark 
don't ever, ever forget this idea that, you know, you buying a copy, if you can just step back into your own dual awareness for one second and be like, you know, I'm going to pay for the guy behind me today. Yeah. It alters the way I'm going to send a to quick you. text. Ah. Just a quick text was life giving to me in a time when I needed it so badly. And it took 18 seconds, maybe, you know, like it's such a, oh. it's such a small thing, but it is a huge thing. And the, do you notice this? The people who love us the most are suspicious when we're kind. <laughs> so when I send my husband a text, I say, you know, babe, I just wanted to remind you that you are like one of the best dads on the planet. I, I feel so grateful for you. You know what he says to me all the time? What'd you buy? What do you need? <laughs> what, what'd you buy? And I, and I think it's so interesting because, you know, the, the if I do that for him more often, or I do that for, you know, my parents get concerned when I say like, I'm just thinking about you today. They're like, what, what, what? What did you see on the news? <laughs> ah! Right. Did you have a mammogram today? Like, I mean, the most bizarre question. And it's, it's this idea that we're anticipating, right. That something must be wrong for us to be able to sink in. And I think I remember Will Smith was saying this to Jay Shetty this week, and it just stopped me in my tracks where it was like, do not ever undo the power of a hello and a goodbye. Yeah because you just never know. So with whatever you've got left in the tank, make your hellos and goodbyes matter and you will leave so much more filled up, right? You shock people. I mean, I often say this, be so nice to people that they think you're drunk. Like really, <laughs> the case where they're like, is she, okay? yeah, no, like I, I just, I mean, and it doesn't have to be loud over the top. And I think that's the point is that sometimes people feel like you got to come with all the energy, but I got to tell you, one of the most powerful people on my planet is, is my dad. And his one of these fills my soul yeah. forever, yeah. right? You know, when the Mr. Hollis looks at you and just goes, mm -hmm. yeah, yes, son. Do you, so don't underestimate it. If you don't got the energy to bring all the fire, you know, we, we talk about this in our platforms all the time. Let's go. Let's make it big. No, 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 my friend. Especially with babies that are hurting, when you get their eyes when they come off the bus in the morning, yeah. or when you're at the community and the, the kid with the hoodie up and the earrings and the, all the things, and you say, Oh my gosh, red hair looks amazing on you. Just to be seen. I mean, just to like every one of us wants to be seen. And human soul wants to be witnessed, not fit. We want to be seen, but we also want to be seen as ourselves and appreciated for who we are as individuals. And there's something, I, I, the eyes is a big deal. Because just the idea of making contact has become something of a lost art because of the way technology has invaded our world. We're just not as accustomed to one-on-one -on -one time where you are, hey, can you look me in the eyes? Let me see you. Let me show you that you are being seen so that you have that in that connection moment, an actual, an actual feeling of being together and, 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 and being in that like, desire for empathy, actually making someone feel it. You know, and I think so much of this, even as we're doing this, this meeting, it's, you know, we've been doing this virtual stuff for a year, but it's really like you end up off to the left of my screen and there's this disconnect that I have to make in not looking at you, but looking at, <laughs> right? I want you to think I'm actually looking at you. It's all of these things that I think are really um, important in this word, uh, this world of empathy. And I love that you love that word so much. You know, my Brene Brown, if I ever, she is everything that I think the world needs. And I, I love when she talks about, right, the importance of empathy is suspending judgment. And this is the truth about this, right? Because the people who need it the most are the hardest to give it to. Yeah, so real. Right? And when they're not like us, they don't look like us, sound like us, smell like us, believe like us. It is that idea, whatever us is in that moment, it is that you don't necessarily have to condone or support. And often that happens with our adolescents, right? I really like, I got a vape pen. I'm really, you know, I'm really into the weed right now. How do I suspend judgment temporarily and say like, tell me more? Yeah. I was having kind of a surreal out of body moment or two or six when I was on my little tour, because every person is a person that I admire. Every person had been kind, but like until you're actually in their home, you don't realize how kind they're actually going to be. And I was saying, mm -hmm. as I was, I was saying to John this morning, like, Every single person, I left their house and I was like, I'm actually going to be friends with you. I mean, like, what a weird thing that like, and I, and I was, especially with Annie, it was like such a weird thing, but I was like, we could have. Tell me about her in, in her presence. Like, was that, that was phenomenal. It was, hey. it was phenomenal. And the thing is like, I knew who she was. I'm familiar with her work. I'd like seen her stuff online. And yet like, and I had said to her, like, look, we could have done this over zoom. You know, like it could have been a thing. And I'm, even for us, right? Like, this is going to be great. We're going to have a great conversation. But if you were sitting in the chair right next to me, it would fundamentally change the way that we felt connected after this conversation in a way that was like, hey, give me the phone. Give me your phone number. Let's text when something comes up. Like, 
the whole thing changes when you're actually, especially in somebody's home. I mean, I sent these notes and I, and I joked about it, but like they had no concept of what was going on. So it was like, oh yeah, you're going to come over with a phone. It'll be great. And then this whole production crew ro- rolled in and just commandeered their house. It was just like, oh, hey, by the way, sorry, we're taking over. Thanks for having me. I didn't let you know that there was actually like disturbing your furniture uh, as a part of this plant. But how desperate are we for that? Like, I, I just feel like that that probably was such a gift in so many ways, right? Because it's like, we just really want to be seen. Can somebody just please witness right? what happens in the walls of these sacred spaces? Yeah. And I think like that, that's what I loved as I watched it unfold yesterday is that you were like, did you know that people were having real conversations? Yeah. Like, I will say actually with Annie in her office, which is like across the street from her house, it was a great, like, pre, like, a, an amuse-bouche, as you, if you will. Like, hanging out on her patio was amazing, like a little appetizer for the meal. But going to her office and sitting in a studio, it was probably the best podcast I've ever done because there was this, like, hello, friend, welcome. And in the welcome, there was this invitation to just be completely open and totally honest. And there was this, like, empathy that, that existed in every question that was being asked. And I not in like a way that felt like gossipy, but like, I just, I was sharing things that, you know, like, I don't know that I would have been as comfortable to share over a screen and certainly not comfortable enough to share if it hadn't been for the fact that I'd sat on her patio. I actually like asked her, this is such a random thing for a washcloth because I was sweating through my stinking shirt. And I was like, Hey, uh, I know we're new friends, but I'm going to need to go ahead and use your washcloth to dab my brow, or this is not going to look pretty. And she was like, yeah, we're friends now. So go ahead. Oh my gosh. How are you? Can I just tell you, I am in awe of you, of the things you're creating, of watching your babies do amazing things. I, Mr. Dave Hollis, I'm telling you. You're so sweet. You. Thank you. I'm great. I mean, like I'm as great as I've ever been, which is like something that I like have a ton of pride for. And also I've said this a lot lately, Heidi and I have been playing these card games that try and draw us closer in 973 miles worth of distance by in a question asking us to unpack something. And the question that I got was describing myself in three words and the words were work in progress, (laughs) which is a thing that actually like a two or a three years ago version of me would have seen as like some indictment that I wasn't already good. And now I see it as this like badge of honor that like, yeah, I'm always going to be a work in progress and I'm super psyched. There's no, and it's, I'm going to be a work in progress the day before I'm done. And that's great. Doesn't that take some pressure off? Totally. Like, I feel like we've often been in this place, particularly when you're a high achiever, to arrive. Like, have we done it? Have we done it? Right. We got the house, we got the car, we got the kids, we got the, are we here? And And there's still something about it that doesn't feel quite right. And it's like, no, actually that, that's it. Yeah. Like that not quite right is what motivates you to be the next great best thing. And I. Well, it's a, it's a weird thing to like, I, as an achiever, understand through therapy that my interest in having the right title or creating enough security for my family or anything that was about checking a certain box was all about when I get to this place where I've done those things, then I'll be lovable or then I'll get my mom's attention or then whatever it ends up being. And the reality is like, I can see now, oh, I was already lovable. My mom was already going to unconditionally afford me the attention I was interested in, irrespective of whether or not I became president of distribution or wrote a book or whatever else. And yet, I think each of us end up being on this like, oh, I have to keep on achieving or earning my enoughness. And that's just like, a, it's a Fool's errand, because like you just never ever get to a place where you feel like enough is enough, which is also like bonkers. But well, and I think the cool thing about it is that actually when you do figure that out or you have those moments of clarity, it doesn't mean you won't fall off again. Because also that is not an arrival. Yeah. Right. Like you get it, you kind of figure it out, and you're like, hey, I feel like I feel pretty good about it. And I don't really need other people. I I get it. My mom loves me, or this relationship is solid. And then the next day you're like, is it? Oh God. Yeah. I don't know. And I think normalizing that is also not somewhere where you get it. Right. I was with Carlos at his dining room table yesterday and I was asking him about like courage and like what kind of courage he needed to have in real time to step closer to this purpose for why he'd been placed on the planet. And the thing that he talked about is the thing that I think universally we struggle with, which is 
He's like, yo, I have been given this opportunity to do this work, and I still have these negative self-talk voices questioning if I am worthy of the mantle that I'm being asked to carry. And I, it's like all of us, like whether it's imposter syndrome or the insecurities of like, well, maybe we won't get it right if we start like stepping closer to the reason why we're here. And there's like some freedom in recognizing like, well, no, you're not going to get it perfect. But don't let the fact that you're not going to get it perfect keep you from actually taking the steps anyway. And so there's something, I don't know, there's something, there's something certainly in my last couple of years that have been beautiful as much as I wouldn't have asked for it that have given this like this carte blanche permission to redefine what like normal ends up being and, and what the like rules are. Because so many of the things I thought were capital T truths or like, like unmovable pillars in my life ended up being moved. And once they were gone, I got to ask a bunch of questions about what else could be moved. Oh my gosh. And it, and I love that you say that because I think it's so much about this process of, you know, particularly in a white privileged position that I often ask the difference between humility and like being really solidly clear that this is a path. And when that path changes, are you like, what, what, do I deserve this? Do I not deserve this? Is this finally the price I have to pay for this? Like, I think it's all this messed up place of like every day, every moment sometimes in those dark places uh-huh. are like really a reset. Yeah. And it's really like, yeah, 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 yeah. And when I can reset enough to be like, okay, trust it, just trust it and give me what you need so that I can be a means of your peace or that I can speak the truth or that I can, you know, I, we, we were really talking about this yesterday. Um, we launched a book on August 1st and it's done well. And we really, no other time in my history have I talked about trauma and racism as so connected yeah. and people in, you know, the BIPOC community and our two plus LGBTQ community, really understanding the process of those of us who don't experience marginalization, how you don't let that debilitate you, but you let that actually be the thing that pushes you more. Like I will relentlessly pursue connection because I have the opportunity not to. And that's privilege. Yeah. Well, right? yeah. No, I mean, it, like the privilege conversation is something that has been so interesting because there is, well, there's like discomfort in it for anyone who is the beneficiary of it because they don't like to have to necessarily acknowledge that they haven't had to go through the same kind of headwind that someone else may have had to. And in it, it feels like for some, right, that there is an indictment on because you're the beneficiary that you also like are racist because of having privilege or that you like participate in the system that oppresses because, and what people hate to hear is that you probably have in some ways unconsciously been a participant in the system that has kept this proliferation of oppression alive. And even if you thought you're like, but I'm not racist, but like, yeah, you, you may not be racist, but you can still step back and have this humbling moment of acknowledging that you live in a system that perpetuates it. And if you aren't actively working against it, you are, because of not being active, complicit because of just, uh, you know, like being a part of it. And right, it's like, it's, it, but, but that is, no one wants to hear that because it's uncomfortable. Because, and then there's a defensiveness that comes up in it. Can I tell you, this is how it's sort of been presented to me over the last, like last month. And it's been this huge shift for me. And I learned about this for a long time in grad school, for example, like implicit bias, right. And really how that works from a neurological, neurological perspective. When you were raised, particularly wherever, however you were raised, that is embedded in sort of the basic limbic system of your body, right? And so when we talk about implicit bias, it's often unconscious. It is the filter that it must go to to get to your prefrontal cortex. So I was raised in this place where, you know, there's a big understanding between us and indigenous peoples, a big understanding between us and black people, a big understanding of us and uh, gay people or those who identified as not straight. I can say all day long that, that that's not how I feel. That's not how I believe. I don't, I don't want to be racist, but guess what I am? To the implicit bias, the filter that goes through my head and my brain, all of those messages go there first, even the things I can't control, up into the part of my brain that has meant maybe made me more wise or, or worldly or you know even surrounded by people who are marginalized, which doesn't make me better. I still have implicit bias yep. and you can't address what you don't acknowledge. Yeah. And that, like, I cannot tell you what a huge shift that's been. I'm a 46 year old white girl with a PhD who has done a lot of work. I thought I have a lot of, and I, 
two years ago, we have, and I'm sure you're familiar up in Canada and a little bit in the U.S., there's been this reckoning with our Indigenous peoples about how much of a cultural genocide there's been, right? And so even two years ago, they were like, Orange Shirt Day is to identify how incredibly oppressed this culture in our society has been. And two years ago, Dave Hollis, I put an orange shirt on my kid. It was their ball shirt. And I put it on them because it was orange. And I just knew they needed orange. Like I knew they, yeah. I didn't want them to stand I had no idea why. Yeah. Are, are you, are you kidding? No. I, what, what is it? <laughs> and there's so much about this, right? That I just was so not truthful to me about how critical that is. And I can't tell you the passion that has really evoked since I've understood my role in this process, which is to relentlessly pursue it. Yeah. And there's this quote, I know you love quotes and I, I live by so many of them. A, a dead guy named Ram Das was a philosopher yeah. and a yoga you know, life changer, you might know, I know. Baba. He says this, we are all just here walking each other home. Oh, so good. I actually, on this very <laughs> podcast, I had a, a friend of mine, his name is Dr. Ed Barron. He came on just as we were in the midst of all of the tumultuousness of 2020 to have a conversation about racism and, and just why it's so hard for any of us, especially if we end up being the beneficiaries of privilege to acknowledge the systems that exist or our role inside of it. And he gave this, um, he gave this uh, example. And I, I, I don't know the person who had originally had the quote, and I, I wish that I could say it in real time, but the, the quote was that there is a, a moving sidewalk that all of us are standing on. And that moving sidewalk is the systemic racism that just exists, the, 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 the systems and the oppression that just exist and have existed forever and ever. And when you though you are super well-intended suggests that you are not racist, but you are not actively working against the moving sidewalk that we are all standing on, then you are complicit in perpetuating, or at least like letting that system exist for a longer period of time. We have to walk against that at a pace that is faster than it. And, and that's the thing, you know, so like, it's not enough to just say I'm not racist, you have to be anti-racist. And you have to call out the things that are systemically keeping other people down. You have to be comfortable getting uncomfortable in conversations that make you feel the things that, of course, you feel when you start challenging things like this that have existed for a long period of time. But I just love that I, the, the analogy, the metaphor of a, a moving sidewalk, because you can, like, you know, like in the airport, if it were going the opposite way, how fast would you have to walk to get to the other side of it, knowing that it just exists? It's, it, there's no debating that it exists. It exists. But because it does, what role could you play in helping walk against oh, the, the, the grain? When I became a mom, this was one of the biggest things for me is that my babies were watching. And you know what I really didn't understand even till like a couple of years ago is that like I was raised in rural Alberta. Okay. So imagine Texas, rural Texas, very similar in so many ways. And I would say, you know, we go camping with friends who I love dearly, or we spend time with people and there would be so many things that were okay before, not even very long ago, right? The odd joke or the, you know, doing these things like, oh, yeah. how and when do you have those conversations? Because our babies are watching. What does that happen? Like, how do the, those are such conversations that even at this stage in my life, we're still having yeah. every day. Yeah. Like I yeah. wish I was so much better at this, uh, but it is, it is such a journey. Anyway. It's, and it's hard. I, no, the thing is it's hard, but it's essential because it is something that, to the point that you made minutes ago, we are the byproduct of the programming or the culture inside of which we were raised. And as much as they may have been well-intended, as much as they may have been emulating what was quote-unquote normal for the times, if we don't change what normal looks like, then it's just a cycle that ends up perpetuating and repeating itself generation after generation. And, uh, you know, like the reckoning that exists in 2020 and 2021 and beyond ends up also being something of a mandate for any of us who are the beneficiaries of privilege to dive into hard conversations and challenge the things that have never been maybe challenged in the way that they need to be today. All right, I, I have a question. This is now me. You can put me on the clock and I'll, uh, whatever your billable rate is, I'll go ahead and take it. I'm interested in your perspective on this. I, in having gone through what ended up being the hardest year of my life, but also it turned out, of course, to be my best because hard things produce good things. I, at the beginning of grief from my divorce, tried to stifle my sadness in front of my children because I felt some burden would be placed upon them for seeing in addition to there being two houses, their dad crying. 
as a bad thing. And then I got to a place where I was like, you know what? I'd actually prefer to model that it's okay for you to be in touch with your emotions, that I am working through something that's going to make me stronger. And there will be times when I am like Cal Ripken going to cry on consecutive days. And that's just fine. I'm going to, I'm going to bias the jury by suggesting my hope is that my decision to do so was right. And when uh, a handful of days ago, school came back in and one of my children approached me about seeing a counselor because of his relationship with sadness and how normal sadness as a thing had become, he wanted to continue to talk about it, but also like the idea of talking about it with someone else. And I was like, man, I am always on the hunt for just a little baby tiny sign from God that things are going okay as a dad. And maybe this moment is that moment, but every one of us, right? You don't have to go through a divorce. We're going through COVID, right? It's hard. And so if you as a, as a listener are going through this hard thing, from your perspective as this PhD in clinical psychology, like how much is too much or is there such thing as too much in being open with the experience of your experience in front of your children. And I ask in part because of the way that you teed it up with your grandpa's square footage analogy at the beginning, where of course you couldn't even hide it back then. Um, how much is too much? Uh, such a great question. So first of all, uh, I'm so proud of your babe for you know taking that step and, and most importantly, being able to come home and tell you that. Yeah. Because I think sometimes the hardest part is not only do we want to protect our babies, but they want to protect us. And so your kids are super tuned in to how you're doing, how much you can handle, how much mom can handle, what, what do I need to hide? And you can't tell them how to do hard things. You have to show them. But what's critical in that process is you have to show them in a developmentally appropriate way. And people say, oh my God, what the hell does that mean? It means that when it becomes their job to fix it, then you know you're crossing the line. When it becomes your job to be able to demonstrate how you handle hard things, because I think a lot of times, you know, it's interesting, even in in grief, uh, we often try to protect our babies so much in this process. We don't bring them to funerals. Uh, When somebody, you know, dies, even an animal dies, we're like, no, 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 we're not going to cry. You can't tell them how to mourn. You have to show them. And the loss of a marriage, the loss of a family, the loss of what was supposed to be, the promises of what was, there's such a grief and a mourning in that process that I got to show you how to do it. And I think, um, you know, there, there's this beautiful statement, Dan Siegel, a psychiatrist says that I love, you've got to name it to tame it. Oh, that's good. Isn't it? So good. You've got to name it to tame it. And when you give them that opportunity to sort of talk about it, then they put those little pieces back in place that might splinter as a result of a loss of a relationship or a connection or all of those things. And we know, here's the thing that gets me about divorce, is that it is one of the most stressful things. In the top 10 things of things that kids can experience, it is in the top 10. In addition to, I mean, similar to abuse and neglect and trauma, it is a big deal. And I think that it is less of a big deal when we allow the processing to happen. But here's the thing. We give kids language. We want it to happen. And then we freak out when it does. When they come home and say, like, I'd like to see a counselor. I'm feeling very sad and anxious and depressed. You're like, whoa, my God. I've had parents say that to me before oh. where we encourage this and we go through this process where we're like, no, 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 let's talk about it. Let's name it. Let, like, let's create a space. And so then finally they get brave and they're like, I think I need a therapist. And you're like, oh my. And then you envision like, okay, so now clearly they're going to be a locked psychiatric inpatient unit. We need men. <laughs> we actually need 57. Like, holy. I, but that's when we create these faces of kids with emotional language, it is not how our dinner tables typically went. Although we witnessed a lot of emotion because of the small spaces, I can never remember my dad saying to me, listen to me, tell me about the hardest part of me leaving your mama. Yeah. Yeah. What are you worried about most? I don't remember any of those. I mean, my immediate reaction, honestly, like of the things that this human has done in his life and man, he's done a lot of good. This is among the proudest. And I immediately said, do you realize, do you realize how strong you are for wanting to have someone to talk to that is just like you are so strong for being cool enough and comfortable enough to want to talk about, in his words, the tsunami of sadness. I mean, he said, I'm experiencing a tsunami of sadness. And I was like, well, the modifier that's been chosen, my friend, is significant. <laughs> and and what was interesting, I mean, like truly in, in a world where I had never myself done this kind of therapy and it's just been transformative for me. I've been doing internal family systems since around the time of the divorce. And what's interesting is like this relationship that I have created between self and my helpers and these emotions and why they're presenting and what role they think they're playing. 
it's given me a set of language to ask, actually ask one of my kids who's representing a tsunami, hey, can we actually invite the tsunami to sit with us here and ask it why it believes it's here? And it was like, the thing is like, I've talked about IFS and adults are like, you may be crazy, but the imagination of kids actually allows them to have this like, okay, like let's invite fear to a table. Okay, what kind of table is it? Okay, what does the fear look like? I'm like, like whatever you want, let's go. And it just became this like really rad, totally beautiful moment where instead of, you know, I, my intention was like, can I move you away from feeling like you are the sadness to that you are the witness of the sadness and trying to engage in a conversation, understand why the sadness is there. But it just led to such a beautiful conversation that would not have been possible if not for the way that my work with this guy, David, who I am every session getting one step closer to finally paying off his boat, I would not have known how to even engage in a conversation if I hadn't myself been doing some work. But because we all come from places where that wasn't necessarily the skill set of the people who raised. Oh, for sure. And not again, because that because they didn't intend to where they weren't doing those things. You could just look at your dad and know what was off because you had so much more face to face connection. Like if I if I set out the number of times that you were in the same physical proximity as a primary caregiver, it's very different than it is today. And I know yesterday, you know, you were speaking a little bit about success and parenting and how do you define that? Can you be a good parent and, and have a successful business? Can you do all those things? Because something's got to give, right? It is the quality with which we engage that matters so much more than the quantity. And being in the same physical space matters so much for neurochemistry and eye contact and just re-feeling how you as a parent is navigating this process. And I think what's so critical about your babes is that some of them will be verbal about it. Some will be able to say, I've got a tsunami of emotion. And the other fella, I mean, I have three and I have boy-girl twins. They came out on the same day, same uterus, could not be more remarkably yeah. different. Oh, yeah. Same okay. here. I mean, I didn't have a uterus or twins, but yes. Well, I mean, All the you're kids almost- are different. All of them, wild. And and so I think sometimes it is about not necessarily if if they can't name it, it doesn't mean that they're not in the same, you know, they're not progressing or making sense of the hard thing to the same degree as the, as the one who can name it. But so much about it then becomes, are you the, are are you the visual kid? Can you draw it? Yeah. Can you, you know, show me what what does it feel like? Journaling actually. So here's, what's interesting actually, and this is going to be the next question and I'll just jump into it. But my two younger kids are, because I don't think they necessarily hit the programming of the worry of social pressure on how they ought to be to the same extent as the older two. When you sit and have a conversation with them, they are an open book. We've always had this very kind of fluid conversation about how they're feeling and what they're feeling. And so their degree of comfort, fantastic. The older two have just been a little more quiet because that's just a little bit of what their wiring ends up being. But journaling for one of them has become something which I just like, I cannot, I, I didn't embrace journaling until two years ago. And it has been such a cathartic thing to allow some of the unconscious thoughts in my head to come out after I've been writing for some length of time. But my question was going to be, is there a different kind of approach that's necessary once you cross a certain age threshold to try and draw someone into a conversation when they start to become a teenager. I mean, for lack of a better word, where like doors start closing and they're becoming their own person and their willingness maybe to share is different than that of someone who might be under 10 years old. Yes. Okay. So there's no hard and fast rules in this process, but if there was three things that came to my mind, first of all, you know where the best conversations with teenagers happen in the car, in the car. I I knew you were going to say it because of course that's the way it happens in my life already. Yes. I, well, the Bronco is a sacred place in so many ways, but you also, can't hear here in the Bronco. I love the Bronco, but that is, it has to happen in a minivan, but keep going. I love okay. this. Very good. Yes. Yeah. Back to the minivan. Good. Very good. The other thing that always happened or helps is to have a snack. So uh, you can't regulate a kid with a carrot stick. And so when a kid is losing their friggin' mind, just like you and me, when we're having our most significant meltdowns, I'm not like, I need a salad. <laughs> I, I need a Slurpee. I need ice cream. I need gummy bears. And so when I'm driving with one of our babes, or if I'm even, you know, really wanting to connect with a kid that I'm coaching, I'll be like, you know what, let's go grab a Slurpee. Yeah. Right. 
And you're driving around because you want to know why is you can't swallow and be emotionally dysregulated. It's biologically impossible because where your limbic system sits, I need the prefrontal cortex engaged. So even if I have somebody like Noah's age having an absolute meltdown, I'm not going to address the issue. I'm going to address her behavior. For I'm going to say, come here, babe. Can I get you a glass of water? Because if I can get her to swallow, then I'm going to be able to speak better about it. When I get into adolescence, what matters the most is really meeting them where they're at. So you choose the music. It might be something that is going to drive you nuts, but we are going to listen to whatever, you know, yeah. rap that you're going to just dig and we're going to go get a snack and we're going to drive around. And I'm going to say things like, what's the hardest part about this being 13? I mean, how am I doing as a mom? Did you know I'm new here? Like, did you know I have never done this with a 15 year old? Yeah. Right. Am I like, what's, am I like nailing it? Probably. I mean, I know that's what you're going to say, but when I'm not nailing it, like what, what am I failing at the most? Right. And having those kind of, I, I think just teeing it up in those ways really gives you these most remarkable answers. And I think the other thing that's really critical about this process is eye contact, although it's important, becomes hard in adolescence because there's so much going on in here. So you'll notice, right. Hoodies come up, ball caps go down, hair, whether it's cool to have a lot of hair or not. I really, Really, I'm not sure what's going on back here. So I'd rather just up, up, up. So this idea of noticing when that comes and goes becomes really fascinating. When do I get you more? And typically when you're riding beside me in a car, proximity is decreased. It's the most culturally appropriate place to be close to your baby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's also like, yeah. I, I, and they're locked, in, they're, locked really in, they're confined, they can't go. And, it, and, and in a world where I am like high frequency, how's it going? How are you feeling? How was your day? The length of answer is correlated to age in inverse relationship, right? So the older they get, the shorter the, the answer. Fine is now, you know, like kind of standard fare and trying to pull a thread. Hey, uh, okay, fine in what way? It's harder when we're, to be honest, just like hanging out in the living room. It's easier, as you say, in the car. I, I do, I love that idea. Totally. And they might not even have an understanding of what fine means, yeah. right? So for us, I really want to know, but it doesn't really necessarily matter. I think the other thing is cutting them from the herd. If you have one, uh, you know, I have three, I know you have four. Do you notice how different it is when you are one-on-one with them? Oh, it's, I mean, truly one-on-one time as a thing that has to happen on the regular has become a super priority. If my stated interest as part of my primary identity as their dad is to be an exceptional one. It can't happen in pack. It like, it has to happen and it has to happen. What I've, what I've really come to find when you say like the meet them where they are, it has to happen inside of a space where I am now standing inside of a, a pool of their passion or am in their world or whatever. And so like my, my son who plays baseball, like we connect when we're, when I'm doing pitching, you know, catching him pitching or at the batting machine with him or whatever it might be. And Ford, who is, you know, my, my younger son, he's uh, really into the outdoors. And so like for us, an adventure where the two of us have gone off to go find rocks and sticks and whatever else it might be, like there's something beautiful that happens because adventure is what lights his heart on fire in the outdoors. I don't personally like to be outside. I don't like dirt. But he loves dirt. So like, I got to get in the dirt if I want to try and get on his level and have him tell me things like that I want to hear. And I think what's really interesting about this is that like, I, if you have single moms, single dads sort of listening to this and we're trying to navigate or, you know, somebody who's working three jobs and they have five babies, like, how do you do this? Where do you find the time to do this? I I really just want to be clear about this. I mean, even with our own kids at the height of when I'm traveling or doing books or doing all these things, I mean, I messed this up so many times. I wrote a book, Dave, called Kids These Days. And if you watch me with my own kids, you wouldn't buy the freaking book. I, this is so much easier to do in theory than it is in practice. You understand? And I think giving ourselves grace in this regard is also so friggin' important because I even try once a year to just have a one-on-one day with my three kids. That's three days out of 365 that if I dedicate to one of them and we do things like you get to pick the dinner, where are we going for lunch? You want me to try? Okay. We're going rock climbing. That's amazing. Do you know your mother's 46 and I I don't know that I've bended like that since 93, but I am, I'm in it. Like what, whatever you need. And so I feel like Take the pressure off. You don't need, this is not like, I'm, I'm not frolicking with the children on a weekly basis, planning remarkable rock hunting trips. To give yourself so much grace in this process. It is like five minutes of bedtime. It is, you pick the book, let's go. It, it's, let's try to, you know? Yeah. And I think that it really is that, that piece of giving yourself grace in this process. In a really, really strange way in this dating adventure post-divorce, I am with someone who's, 
973 miles away. And so there's a Southwest flight that's required for in-person time. And I have tried to, as often as I can, rotate one of the kids coming with, it makes them feel so special to be able to come. And plus, because she has kids, there's then this opportunity for them individually to connect with other human beings as opposed to in, in packs. And um, anyway, it's just, it's been, it's been incredible. Let's talk about, I mean, I want to talk about teachers. I want to talk about COVID. I want to talk about schools because you've obviously just had a book come out that is important in this regard. I want to talk about that too. But what are some of the biggest things that are facing both educators and students against the backdrop of COVID in real time? Oh my goodness. I, so I've long said, and I don't even know, like I love educators. I spend a lot of time speaking to teachers. I don't know how this happened. Actually, I'll tell you how it happened. So I worked on a locked psychiatric inpatient unit. It's called the Alberta Children's Hospital. It's sort of our center of excellence in this province. And these are babies ages four to 18 that need to be placed in a locked psychiatric inpatient unit to figure out what's wrong with them. Yeah. And so once I did this for 10 years, and then we ended up having three babies in a very short session of time, and I'm old and all of that stuff. So I started uh, a, a clinical practice and I started to consult schools around the tough ones because I love the hitters, the kickers, the biters, the ones that tell you to F off. Those are my babies. Like, let's, let's go. And so I started to consult with schools because they would come in and say like, oh my goodness, we have never ever seen a kid like this? What do we do about the hitting and the kicking and the guns and the biting and all these things? And I just say, let's, let's tell me more. And so eventually I started to speak on more stages. And then we wrote a book, which is where Kids These Days started. And then now Teachers These Days came out. It is really about this idea that in order to regulate, I need the big people to be regulated. Yeah. And historically yeah. in the system of education, we focused on the kids. We focused on literacy and numeracy and outcomes. And we still do that very much. The highest punitive measure is a suspension or how do we kick you out of this connection place to hope that you'll do better and get better. And it doesn't work. Yeah. And I think my biggest point with educators in this season is just to remind them about how much they matter about, you know, as a parent, I can tell you when I deliver my babes and it's the favorite part of my whole day. Like, I don't get why teachers choose to be teachers because basically what they're doing, they're, they're saints because they're like, you know what? I want to hang on to somebody's most precious commodity. That's what I do for my job. And I like lice and I, and I, and I like to be spit, like, I like poop and I, and I, you know what, like what could go wrong with me saying to every parent in a community, I got him. I got him. What could go wrong with like, they could have been like accountants or mechanics or baristas. And they're like, oh, we're going to be teachers. So I am forever grateful to those humans that welcome my babies with open arms. And I often say to them, you know, when you call me in the run of a day, I'm nervous. But when you say, I just need to tell you about Asher. He's the funniest kid today, Jode. Uh -huh. I, I, I'm just so grateful. Like, I want to make out with him. I am prepared <laughs> to deliver 87 Chromebooks and a whiteboard. Like, what, what do you need? I'm your girl. And I just want to remind them about that and then really remind parents about the importance of don't forget to say you're amazing. Tuck the note under the windshield wiper of the teacher's car that says, I'm just grateful for you. Yeah. Take your kids and a pile of chalk and in the parking lot say, this is where my favorite teacher parks. Please drive home carefully. My life wouldn't be the same without you. Huh? So good. We're just walking each other home. Yeah. And so- that's the whole point of kids these days and teachers these days is, is I think to hang on to a profession that I think has been far overlooked. We don't pay teachers, particularly in the U.S., what they're worth because they they not only change lives. Literacy and numeracy is the least of our worries in this in North America. More so, it is about emotional regulation and relationship. Yeah. And when somebody lights up, my goodness, if I could just remind every educator that the most important thing that they've ever done on this planet is to look into the eyes of kids and say, I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. So good. I mean, like everyone, I hope everyone, if you, if you had an experience where at one point you had a teacher speak something into you that was truth that you previously couldn't have seen, but adopted as truth, man, you're a good writer. Oh, okay. I am a good writer. Or, hey, you're smart. Or, man, you tried hard. You're, you're someone who puts out a, a, a lot of effort. I had plenty of people speak that truth in me when the voices in my head or my belief in self would have otherwise told me something different. And I, I took it and I just accepted it as now my new truth. There's something so good that comes out of the amazing work that teachers do also. And I think it's just like lost on us, right? We are all just as a byproduct of our own humanity, 
connected so much to our own individual circumstances, man, it's so hard inside of this COVID. It's so hard in this hybrid learning. It's so hard. And these teachers also are going through those same things and are also raising their own humans. And I think that gets lost sometimes on the people that might be critical of the way that teachers are doing teaching. It's like, come on, y'all. Let's not only acknowledge that they are saints, they are doing it for less money than they deserve, they are doing it in conditions they never experienced, but also if you ever get frustrated, just dole out some grace instead of writing something in the Facebook feed of the school's Facebook page, please. Oh, please. And I think that's that's the issue of every parent-teacher council, of everybody on the planet. In Teachers These Days, we ask teachers to send us stories about, you know, the time that they knew they made a difference. And I cannot tell you how much my heart was broken. There's, I, I'm going to tell you this real story real quick because it was so crazy. She said to me, uh, I met a little kid in kindergarten who was chubby, beautiful little boy, and he had this light in his eyes. And by the time I got him in grade three, that light was gone. Mm. And she said, uh, I know he still loved me. And I, and I lit up every time I seen him and whatever I could do as he, you know, transferred foster care and did all the things, uh, I lost track of him. And then I had to do, she said, a teacher, I got this really incredible position to be able to do testing in, in juvenile detention centers. And so she said, I walked in and they brought this kid in, in handcuffs. And it was that chubby boy from kindergarten. And she said, uh, you can take those off. He's no threat to me. And they were like, no, no, no. He is very, very bad. They sat down, they talked. And of course he, he lit up with her. He did beautifully in this testing. And he said, you know, I just want to tell you something, Mrs. R. Do you remember the time that, that our school got broken into? And she said, yeah, like five years ago. And, and she said, he said, yeah. He said, do you remember that your classroom wasn't touched? Oh man. And she said, I I do remember that. She said the whole school was ransacked and things were broken. And he said, because of you, I told my crew, nobody touches Mrs. R's room. Mm. Oh, man. And she said the next time I seen him was at his funeral. And it was, she said, in that moment, I recognized that I didn't do anything for this baby because he wasn't in a position to learn literacy and numeracy. I saw him. I witnessed him. And he would have done anything to protect me, even years later. Uh, so never underestimate your power. And i that was it for me, Dave. Yeah. I was like, okay, let's go. Like this, How can we inspire people to know that they matter just by showing up? Yeah. Come on, the, the bar is low right now. Uh, you don't need anything fancy. We just need you. And, uh, and, and you're so much more than you could ever imagine. And so it's things like that, that I think that as parents, as, as I want to be the house where my kids bring their best friends, I want to be the house where, you know, okay, there's coach Jody. She's going to be like, watch it. She's a little bit off her rocker, <laughs> but it's so much fun. And I think like that, that's where the memories are going to be. Yeah. Teachers these days, as a follow-up to kids these days, is now out. It came out at the beginning of August? Yeah, August 1st. Excellent. Uh, So if you, uh, as a listener, are interested in having something that will fill you up and also give you a little bit for how you can come around those teachers that are doing some good things on this planet, uh, that is a thing to go get. If someone is interested, Dr. Jody, in learning more about the work that you do, following you on social, any of those things. Where do they go inside of the interwebs to learn more about you and your work? Oh my goodness. com is where we are uh, on all the things, the Insta and the Facebook. And I love to go live most every morning uh, as we step into this new season in September, it'll be Monday and Wednesday and Friday. And just as a place to refill your soul for 20 minutes before you step into your day, it is such an honor to have created this little bit of a, a platform, a community. Uh, I know Dave, you've been so good at that uh, in your world. And I just, it's remarkable to me what happens when a group of like-minded people come together. Oh yeah, How supportive they are of each other and how much really you can just fill your soul and get on with your day and give it away to the people in your world. So I, uh, I would love, I mean, so many people in your community are phenomenal. You've been such an inspiration to me and uh, I hope we can do the same. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you. I just, I keep doing the work that you're doing. You are bringing your light to this world in a way that is so needed. And, uh, and in the way that we talked about at the beginning of the conversation with what looks like even more risk in the world of mental health on the horizon, we need to just keep pushing into and having community around this kind of a conversation so that it becomes so normal and so just a part of our regular every single day conversation. We're able to handle it as things end up showing up. I'm going to ask you my last question, but I'm going to ask you a pre-question to the last question, just because I I do think this is important considering the things that we are going through. If there is a parent listening right now who is struggling with their own child's emotional regulation, what is the 
advice that you give to helping them get to a place of regulating? Know that the upset is necessary. The chaos is necessary to learn the calm. They're not doing it to you. They want you to walk them through it. Mm. And you can drop your shoulders and give everything you've got in that moment to know the more you can sit in it while you walk them. There's always take charge moments. That's what they need to feel safe. But the idea of, I don't like you, I hate you, get out of here, you're the worst ever. Man, that's a part of the game, the job of getting emotionally dysregulated to see if there's somebody strong enough to show me how to get back. Mm. And that's our biggest job. And you can do it so much better with other people's children. It is not that you're not skilled at this, my friend. That is the truth for all of us. If you came into my house and my babies were losing it, my goodness, you'd be so much better at it. And the same goes for me with yours because I have less invested in the game. So people say to me, I'm just not a good parent. Oh, 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 not a chance. We all have this skill. We tend to lose this skill when we feel threatened, when we feel like we're incompetent, when we feel like we're messing it up, when we feel like all the things that they're saying to us or for us or about us might be true. I wish somebody else was my dad or my mom. And you're like, oh, yeah, I think you're right. I actually think you're right. That's not true. And what they need to hear is things like, you don't scare me. This isn't, this is safe. We'll figure this out together. I'm not going anywhere. And how you walk each other through that process, I think is is the trick. So just know you are right on track. You are their best bet. No matter what they say, it's they need you more than anything. Yeah. What's interesting, uh, weird confession to a psychologist, but I, in the Earlier state, earliest stages of the disruption of our family dynamic changing was not as consistent in accountability around the rules of this house because I, in some weird way, felt like, oh, I don't want to uh, also lop rules on top of you having to process a thing that you didn't vote for. And it wasn't serving the needs of my kids. And it was a thing that I couldn't see at the beginning. I was trying to be good or kind or graceful. And instead I I was not uh, like reinforcing the boundaries that actually made them feel safe and the accountability. And uh, as the school year was coming back in for sure, I was like, "Uh, there's a new sheriff in town. Uh, I I love y'all, but uh, let's be clear. Like the tech rules, they're in effect. The dinner time, it's standard. Uh, The way that we're going to bed, it's happening. So if you, um, I don't know, if, if, there's, if there's anything that's happening in the disruption of these last 18 months that has in any way made you compromise or think differently about the way that your kids need structure or accountability, uh, as a person who's been witness to not having done it perfectly in the last 18 months, I am positive that there's a correlation between consistency and accountability as a thing that my kids need, even when things are upside down and disrupted. <laughs> yeah. And even if it's one thing, right, doing the best you can with what you got. I mean, if it is takeout for supper uh, all through the month of September, good. If it is that you remember that every morning we're going to make sure we do our hug before we go to school. If it is the one thing that says, you know what, bedtime lights out at nine o'clock, no matter, that's the one thing we're going to get right, these guys. Okay, come on. Can we do this? That's the one thing. And so I think it's really about giving ourselves grace in that way too, because I I mean, there's no right way to do this. There really isn't. It's really so much about the regulation that matters more than the way it happens. Oh, that's good. yeah, staying staying calm in times of distress. I mean, if that's the one thing you need to think about in this season, deep breath, lots of water, all of those things that fill us with joy. I want to, I want you to think about the last time you belly laughed with your babies mm. because joy is the most vulnerable emotion on the planet. And the more laughter I hear in the home, uh, in, in a school, in an organization, the healthier I know it is, because that is the most vulnerable place where we're at. We were watching so, Lost, uh, the series, uh, and then we transitioned yeah. to Parks and Rec. For this reason, because we needed to laugh a lot more than we needed to feel weird about what was happening on an island. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a beautiful transition. Oh, no, I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing. It's been a hard season, Dave, and it's been just such a beautiful thing to watch you uh, walk through because I think uh, it's remarkable to me that 50 to 60 percent of all families navigate new relationships, old relationships, stepping out, stepping in, you know, walking your babies through this process. And so it can be such an isolating, alone, embarrassing, uh, I think, shameful experience for so many people. And I think normalizing it, talking about it, really, you know, naming it to tame it. Naming it to tame it. Such a good thing. You can't, if you don't acknowledge what's even going on. And by the way, like I've said this so many times, but 
my my interest in talking honestly about what was happening was wanting to feel normal by other people who could affirm that they also had the same kind of experience when they were going through what they were going through. And you don't get that feeling of connectedness and normalcy if you keep it under a bushel. Uh, no? <laughs> All right. Last question. On this podcast, we finish every single episode with the same question for each of our guests. I would love for you to share a single key takeaway with our audience. It could be an idea, a question, an actionable piece of advice. What is the single thing that you would leave with listeners today? I think the thing I want you to tuck into your pocket today is if you only knew. And don't ever underestimate your power. Right now, as you're listening to this, if you only knew what a text to somebody you love, particularly one who you know instantly, who's the one who needs connection from you today? Whoever just popped into your head, dead or alive, you send it up, you send it out, you send it physically in a note, a text, it will alter the trajectory of their day, yes, but more so yours. Uh, Dr. Jody Carrington, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I'm so grateful for you. This was such a fun conversation. I know that we will do it again. If you, as a listener, took anything away from this podcast and how the heck could you not have, please take a picture of the podcast in the device that you're listening to this on. Uh, tag myself, tag Dr. Jody Carrington, and tell us, tell your, uh, your crew, your community, what it is that you got from it. Between now and next week, think about that person that you thought of. Send them a quick text to let them know that you're thinking of them. Change their day and change your own. We'll see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.